Coming up. Jesus loves sex workers more than OnlyFans do. <laughs> I'm going to hell anyway. They try and they try and try, but sexuality can't be healed. It's not intended to be healed. A lot of our shame as queer people comes from this one book. A Gay and a Non-Gay is a podcast from James Barr and Dan Hudson. They're like a lovely little couple, except they're not. Hi there, welcome to A Gay and a Non-Gay. I'm Dan Hudson, I am not gay. He is James Barr and he's gay. So Dan's finally got TikTok and he's following one person. No, it's not me. No, it's not A Gay and a Non-Gay. He's following our guest today, Reverend Brandon Robertson. So Reverend Brandon Robertson is a legend. Uh, He joins us today from DC. He's a gay writer, activist and preacher. He was a faith advisor to the Pete Buttigieg campaign. Yes. Uh, and he's best known as being the TikTok preacher. He yeah. basically rose to fame uh, during the pandemic because he was posting loads and loads of cool videos about LGBTQ plus inclusion in the Bible. The Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. It doesn't condemn queer people or queer identities. LGBT people are already the church. You don't have the power to exclude us from participating in Christ. The table, the kingdom, and the power is God's and God's alone, and God has welcomed us in. His videos are so cool and so interesting and are taking on evangelical churches around the world that think being gay is a sin, that support conversion therapy, oppose marriage equality, are transphobic, etc, etc. So whether you're into Christianity, religious vibes or not, you're definitely going to get a lot out of this episode because like it or not, a lot of our shame as queer people comes from this one book. We're going to hear loads and loads of interesting stuff. We're going to hear about all the gays in the Bible. Yes. How the word homosexual wasn't even in the Bible until 1946. Now, this is beyond fascinating. We'll also hear about um, his experiences doing conversion therapy. But first up, Brandon is going to debunk some of evangelical Christianity's favourite work. So, Dan, now that you're on TikTok, are you going to also follow me? Uh, I guess so, but... I'm surprised that you've got TikTok on your phone because I thought you had such an old iPhone. No, I've upgraded it. Oh, you have? Oh, well done. Welcome to 2021. Thanks. <laughs> Welcome to a gay and a non-gay. I'm going to do a dramatic reading from Corinthians for you, and I want yes. you to debunk this particular one because this one mm. frightens me. Do not be deceived, neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we're in with a bunch of pretty awful people there. (laughs) So are we going to hell or not? No, because that is an incredible mistranslation. The word homosexual doesn't appear in the Bible until 1946, which is really crazy to think about, seeing that the Bible has been around for over 2,000 years. The word that's used there in Greek is arsenokoitai. Arsenokoitai never appears in the Greek language until this moment. Paul makes it up. The Apostle Paul makes up this word, and it's based on that Leviticus passage. Arson means man, and koitai means bed. And so he's literally taking from Leviticus, a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman making a new Greek word, arsenokoitai. And so he's referencing whatever Leviticus was talking about. And what was Leviticus talking about? Temple prostitution, temple idolatry. And if you go and look in the book of Romans and in other passages in Corinthians and in Timothy, where the condemnations in the New Testament come from, 
all of those books are talking heavily about calling Christians away from the pagan practices of the Roman Empire. The context is don't have exploitative sex with younger people or with slaves or with whoever in worshiping idols. That's what's being condemned in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And it's unfortunate that some homophobic translators in 1946, there's a great documentary coming out that will really outline how that word homosexual appeared in the Bible at that point and why it's continued ever since. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals shall inherit the kingdom of God. I went into this research wanting the answer no matter what it revealed. If God said, you are such a horrible abomination that I needed to rid this planet of myself, I was willing to do that because I love God that much. But when I dug in, that's not what I found. And that's a clip from the forthcoming documentary 1946, the mistranslation that helped shape culture. We know that 10% of people are gay, or that's the rumoured statistic. So who in the Bible do you think might be secretly gay? One of the, what are they called? <laughs> people? Disciples. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, there's all sorts of rumours and speculation. I haven't done a ton uh, with speculating about which named characters in the Bible might be gay, but there is a group of people in the Bible who without a doubt, are gay. And they're called the eunuchs, and both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're talked highly of. These were people that were either castrated as punishment. These were people that were born effeminate, and so were viewed as less than. And a lot of these people also may have been uh, intersex. Uh, and so these were certainly queer people, sexual and gender minorities. And if you read throughout the Old Testament and Testament, you'll see a lot about the eunuchs and a lot of positive things said about them. And so I cheer on the eunuchs in the Bible. And a lot of people want to see David and Jonathan from the Old Testament as being in a relationship or maybe Jesus and John, his beloved disciple. But I like sticking with the people that I know. So go eunuchs. A gay and a non-gay. I saw this amazing retweet on your on your Twitter. Jesus loves sex workers more than OnlyFans do. <laughs> yeah, this is where I think progressive Christianity is so important because we're pushing back against the purity culture that has been a part of Christianity for 1500 years. Sex is the easiest way to control people, right? If you can tell people that they can or cannot do something in their bedroom, you have a lot of psychological and physical control over them. And I think that's primarily where a lot of the prohibitions that Christianity has given on sex have come from. They've come from that desire to control. In this progressive Christian movement, there's a strong push to say, let's get rid of all of those values of purity culture and start from square one. What is healthy? What is good? Sex work for so many people. I have friends here in Washington, D.C. that are in the sex work industry. They're wonderful people. They enjoy their jobs. Why would we want to stigmatize something that isn't harming anybody? It's actually, in many senses, helping a lot of people. And it brings people so much joy. Um, I think OnlyFans' decision a month or two ago to move from sex work was just a bad business move, and it's why they reverse that very quickly. But from a religious perspective, I want to encourage people to explore the gifts of our body and explore the gift of relationships with others to do it in healthy ways, but to not be ashamed or afraid because frankly, the only way you learn anything sexually is by trying and sometimes figuring out that you don't like something or that you do like something. I think that is so important for people's development. And it's why you see a lot of conservative Christians that are 
frankly stunted in their emotional and physical development when it relates to sex and sexuality because they've been told to repress that for their whole life. I actually do wonder whether that has had an effect on all of us because we're told so often in our upbringing that the rules of Christianity apply and we can't do whatever we want because there's so much shame around it. And I think when you're a gay person, you have to break through that shame barrier. But as a straight person, well, I don't know if you are able to get past that or not. Because you don't have to. Do you know what I mean? Or am I... Not don't have sense? to get past what? Well, it's easier for you to survive with that barrier in front of you, whereas we have to go through it. I'm going to hell anyway, right. so I'm going to do whatever. Whereas you're going to heaven, right? You're right. There's just a cultural norms of what you're supposed to do sexually and what you're not supposed to do. And queer people have gotten to be pushed out from that. And so there's a little bit more freedom and liberation to explore sexually. And I feel like a lot of straight folks feel like, I have to get married to one person, be with them forever, uh, which is also why we see high divorce rates, high cheating, and uh, anyways, I could go off on that. The woman allegedly behind the affair that brought down Hillsong Church celebrity pastor Carl Lentz. It was a huge fall from grace. Carl Lentz's global following included Justin Bieber and a long list of celebrities and pro athletes will now, without a job and trying to repair his marriage. Side eye. You weren't always this open-minded, were you, and, and aware of everything? Because back in the day, you were actually quite opposed to marriage equality and actually I think you were preaching in the streets about the dangers of it. So what changed? Yeah, it was amazing that as a 12-year-old boy, I started going to a Baptist church with my neighbors. And what was so appealing in that church was I learned all of the answers to all of life's questions in like two months of going to church. And so as a 12-year-old, I had everything figured out. Uh, I thought I knew everything that all these older philosophers were debating about. We were told the Bible gives you certainty. It's black and white. Here's the way things are. But then you live life. I always say when your theology or your beliefs contradict reality, it's the reality that has to win more often than not. And in college, I went to school, conservative Christian college, but in Chicago. And so I was hearing this theology in the classroom that said the earth was 6,000 years old, that said, here's who's going to heaven, here's who's going to hell. But then I would go out into the streets of Chicago. And I remember going to Devon Street, which is this multicultural district of Chicago, and I was bumping into Muslims. The call to prayer came on in the street, and they all bowed down and began to pray. And I remember my colleague uh, from my Bible college saying, this is evil. We've got to get out of here. And I thought it was profoundly beautiful watching this culture of reverence. There's almost a meditative, contemplative aspect of it. And then I would go down to Boys Town and meet gay people of faith. And my theology said that didn't exist. And so I started having these contradictions. Here are gay Christians. Here are Muslims that seem to have be connected to God and peaceful in a way that my faith said they couldn't be. And Catholics, I would meet uh, Catholics that <laughs> were not worshiping Mary and all these things that my faith said they did. And so you start distrusting everything that you were told and you start exploring and realizing that so much of the world that conservative people of faith live in is false. It's falsely constructed. And they're told never to go outside of it because if you cross that boundary, you're entering into the devil's territory. And so it's really mind control, manipulative way of living. And I think, again, the movement that we see today of so many people leaving faith is because at some point people dare to step beyond the boundary. And as soon as you step beyond that boundary, you realize that the world is not scary and evil and demonic as you were told. It's actually full of beauty. And most people in the world are more Christ-like than the people in the pews at the church. And that's where 
the faith crisis begins for so many people. How did you come to that realization? What was the moment in your life where you went, okay, I'm doing this wrong? For me, I keep referencing my college experience because it was deeply traumatic, but deeply transformative. Four years, basically in a evangelical monastery. I started a radio show on our school's campus network where I would interview theologians and people who had different perspectives. And my college thought that was a terrible thing to do because I was inviting the enemy, literally, that was the language that was used, onto the airwaves of our campus. And that was stirring up deception. And so I would get called into dean's offices. I would get called into professor's offices. And I would be told that I was doing the devil's work for asking questions. And then when my sexuality became a question, my college forced me to do a year of conversion therapy. And by the end of that four years, frankly, of abuse, I knew that whatever this fear-based faith that I was a part of was, was not the faith of Jesus. It's not the faith that I see it in the pages of the Bible. And it's not something that I could be a part of anymore because my life no longer aligned with the certainty and the clarity that they claimed because I'd seen beyond the veil. I knew that what we were saying wasn't true. I knew gay people weren't evil. And once you cross that boundary, you can't go back. And once you cross that boundary, you're essentially excommunicated from many of these communities. Pretty immediately, conservative Christians began writing articles on the internet saying that I was a heretic. And once you're branded a heretic, you're done. So I was both forced out, but I also didn't want to be a part of something that was constantly calling me to be dishonest to what I was learning to be true in the world. Something that was so rooted in fear when our faith was supposed to be rooted in this liberating love. So Brandon, you're a conversion therapy survivor. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I had a mild version of conversion therapy. I wasn't sent away to a camp or anything. But basically, in order to graduate, they said, we want you to prove that you still believe with what we believe about homosexuality. So you have to meet with this professor once a week and do this thing called healing prayer. And what we would do would be, I'd go into her office. She would ask me to talk about all my sexual sin, uh, which meant any homosexual thoughts, masturbation, pornography, anything like that. And you talk through that. And then you'd go into this prayer state where you would go back to traumatic memories from your past. And so I grew up in an abusive home, which is kind of the perfect case for conversion therapy. They think all gay people are gay because we had an abusive father and an overattached mother. That's kind of the narrative that they say. And we'd go back to incidents in my childhood and we'd pray and ask Jesus to enter into those moments. So There was this time my mom told me when I was a kid where my dad passed out drunk and I was left crying in a crib. And we would go in that memory and imagine Jesus walking into that room and picking up the baby and holding him. And we'd come out of that prayer state. And the idea was that by inviting Jesus into that trauma and confessing my sin, the past would be healed. And when my past was healed, my homosexuality would be healed. And so every week was this reliving of trauma from the past. Every week was this confessing of sexual urges. And I did it for a year. And it was actually, on one hand, sort of helpful. It's helpful to talk through your trauma. And so while on one hand, I noticed that was helping me a little bit, one thing that I became sure of at the end of the year was that my sexuality hadn't changed at all. And in fact, as I found myself working through trauma, I actually found myself realizing that 
I didn't want to change my sexuality, that my sexuality was here to stay. And of course, that caused my Bible college and that professor who was doing my therapy to completely write me off as evil, demonic, working for Satan. <laughs> it's so interesting. Um, I, I have a therapist and we've gone through traumatic situations in my life and we've done a similar thing, but it's not bring Jesus into the situation. It's either bring yourself in to protect you or bring like your best friend in and imagine them in the scenario to kind of like cure the trauma. But it's never been with the intention of curing my homosexuality and of course it wouldn't work because curing trauma doesn't cure your sexuality they're completely unrelated subjects right yeah and that's the deceptive part of most of the conversion therapy stuff there is some psychological truth that they tie into it and so you see oh wow this is working i remember uh, after like two or three months of doing conversion therapy one of my friends said brandon you seem so much healthier and i was like well yeah because i'm doing trauma work but the promise at the end of this is one that's never going to happen. And when you come to an end of a year of sincerely trying to heal your sexuality and you notice nothing's changed, that causes more trauma, more depression. And that's what moves people towards suicide, frankly, because they try and they try and try, but none of this stuff is intended to heal your sexuality because like you said, sexuality can't be healed. It's not intended to be healed. Two unlikely friends take on the world. There's so many videos on your TikTok. One of my favorite ones is, God's pronouns. What are God's pronouns? And how do you know? Exactly. Well, even the Bible says no one has seen God. And so when people say anything about God with certainty, you should be skeptical. And there's this push because the Bible uses he, him pronouns for God, that that must be the only thing we can use when we speak about God. People don't realize when you're living in a patriarchal culture, of course, that's how you're going to conceive of God. But there are also moments in the Bible where God is referred to as a woman in the Psalms. He's referred to as a mother hen. She's referred to as a mother hen. And there are all these places in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is referred to in gender neutral pronouns. And I think it's a little ridiculous that people get caught up on what to call God. Because again, if we're talking about the infinite, all of our finite words are gonna fall short. I don't think God cares about what we call them. And I think it's probably more helpful in this moment of history as we are rethinking and understanding the truth about gender identity to not make the ultimate thing that we're worshiping, that we're seeking to follow gendered because from the very beginning of the Hebrew Bible, we're told that all human beings are made in the image of God, which means men, women, intersex people were all made in the image of God. And therefore it makes more sense to call God they, them, or just to use the word God in all of my writing, uh, I pretty much say God and God self rather than hear him. But of course, there's a lot of pushback from conservative religion, which still wants to maintain a patriarchal ordering of the world because it's a tool for power. I mean, I know that the Bible is like a full patriarchal like handbook, but I never really thought about it until that moment. All the disciples are men. That doesn't really make sense. Why would all Jesus's best friends be men? Yeah, totally. And it's obviously not accurate. Most historical scholars, even the ones that are not religious, would say the Gospels are important tools, yes, but they're propaganda. They are. They were written by men 
to tell the story of Jesus from a male lens. And we have to understand that when you're interacting with the text and think about who are all these women that the Gospels mentioned that are on the sidelines? What was their relationship like to Jesus? Women were the first people to show up at Jesus's tomb on Sunday morning when he rose from the dead. It's these big questions that we should ask about the narrative because women are there and they're pretty much silenced by whoever's telling the story. And we need to remember it's always a man telling the story. If all of that is made up by men to try and control people, how do we know that Jesus and faith are real and that it's not all just made up? It's a great question. The question about whether God is real, whether the claims of faith are real. We can't know. And that's why it's called faith. Anytime certainty is thrown into it, you're not talking about faith anymore. And so much of religion has become about certainty. You have to know. Nobody knows if we're all honest. And there's a beauty and a freedom to say, I don't know whether God exists for sure. What I do know is that this first century rabbi Jesus that I read in these gospels, as flawed as they are, this message still comes through about loving your neighbor as yourself, about resisting violence, about speaking up for sex workers when Jesus defends a prostitute. That person is somebody that I want to emulate in my life, whether or not that gets me into heaven or saves me from hell, whether or not that gets me on good terms with a God that may or may not exist. Jesus is compelling to me and to billions of other people. And so I feel like what I'm calling people to is let's follow the teachings as best as we can of this historical rabbi named Jesus. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, we should leave all the big questions to be curious about, but to not be certain, not be dogmatic, not divide over. And if we did that, religion would be a force for good in the world rather than all the division we see it causing today. Thank you so much for doing the good work. <laughs> I don't know what to say to you because I'm in awe. Uh, you're awesome. Likewise. I appreciate it so much. Shut up. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on our podcast. Yes, thanks for inviting me. Uh, thanks for listening, babes. Do the admin and support gay and non-gay. Visit gaynongay.com slash donate. <laughs> <laughs>